When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit PlanetBcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. About 20 years ago, back when my dad was coaching my junior football team, the president of the club, a man named Rob, came over to drop something off to him. My sister, who was about five years old at the time, opened the door in tears. Rob asked her if everything was all right, and she blubbered a response that he heard as, My dad died. His face dropped, and then he saw my mother coming to the door. She was crying too. And then, presumably as he was about to fumble his way through words of condolence and make an exit, my dad appeared. There was only a moment of confusion on his face, a moment in which I like to think that somewhere in his mind he entertained the idea that he was seen as a zombie or a ghost. The plain truth of it, though, was that he had misheard my sister. What she had said was that our dog died, but with her childish diction hampered by sadness, I guess it was an easy mistake to make. Rob was understandably relieved and thankful that nothing too bad had happened. But for my sister, it was her first real experience of death. And this is something that animals provide for many of us. Whether it's taking a pet into the vet to be put to sleep, watching a chicken be killed on a farm for food, or flushing lifeless goldfish down the dunny, animals often give us our first proof that life isn't eternal. This month on the show, I've got three stories about the ways that animals interact with our experience and understanding of death. On the Human Ordinary Podcast, I'm Sam Loy, and this is the Headstone Series. In the hills of Bali, to the north of the main tourist locations of Kuda and Seminyak, lies Ubud. It's billed as the cultural capital of the Indonesian island, but with its streets lined with western clothing outlets, massage parlours and tourist shops, it kind of reminds me more of an upmarket street you might find in Melbourne. However, down the end of the main street is the Monkey Forest Sanctuary, one of Ubud's most popular attractions. It's home to a 600-year-old Hindu temple, complete with gorgeous architecture and sculpture, where macaque monkeys roam freely around the grounds, making mischief whenever possible. The first time I was there, with my two-year-old daughter, a baby monkey trotted over to us and stole the water bottle out of her hands. My daughter was not amused, but I could barely hold back my laughter. Slightly out of the way in the forest, up a set of steep steps and removed from the well-worn tourist path, is a small cemetery, Each grave is marked with a headstone about a foot high, some with ornate carvings. Macaques frolic, flirt and fight between the markers with little regard for those buried beneath. Based on our last year data, we have 678 monkeys, Mm. different into six groups. This one is, uh, we call the cemetery group. This is the manager of the sanctuary, Nguaman Buana. Uh, We maintain the monkey as a sacred animal like this kind of place. Yeah. So we not say that monkey 
protect the temple. But what we say is now we are living together with the people and with the monkey. Right. Uh, because in one of uh, Hindu philosophy, we should be live in harmony between people and people, between people and God, and between people and environment. Monkey, part of the environment. We need to live in harmony together here. I decided to return to the monkey forest, this time without my daughter, to speak with Nyoman about the locals' after-death practices. So the cemetery is uh, used for the people who stay in this village that we call the traditional village of Padang Tegal. This is, consists of 641 family. There are about uh, 2,700 people. Nyoman tells me that in the Hindu tradition, they have a belief in three gods, Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the recycler. It is in living according to the will of Shiva that the Balinese Hindu must cremate or recycle a body as soon as possible after its death. But cremation is an expensive process. With the current price, if we conduct the individual cremation ceremony, the cost maybe will be about 15,000 up to 20,000 US dollars. So to save on money, people from the local village are buried at the cemetery in a temporary grave. And then every five years, on a date determined by the senior priest to be ideal, the bodies are dug up and burnt in a mass cremation ceremony. When the people die, uh, we conduct the simple ceremony at home and then bring the body to the cemetery and put there in the ground. The body is buried with its head pointing east towards the sunrise. And then we will open again, we will dismantle again this uh, grave when we conduct the mass cremation ceremony. And If the person died within one year of the next cremation, they are partially burnt so that when they are exhumed, the decomposition won't be so bad. With bodies buried longer, they are mostly just skin and bones by then anyway. On the day of the cremation, we will make a tower to, to, to be placed for the, for the body, and then mostly we will have about 80 up to 90 body. So you can imagine how big the, the tower then to accommodate, let's say for example, about 90 body during the cremation ceremony. The tower is built on the cemetery ground, and then each body is placed into a sculpture of wood and bamboo, fashioned to resemble a powerful animal, such as a lion or a buffalo. This is perfect to help transport the person's soul to God. You know that in, in, in our Balinese tradition, uh, based on Hindu philosophy, the component of the body is two things, right? The, the physical component of the body and the soul. After the ceremony, the ashes of this body component are taken down to the ocean and scattered in the water. Yorman says that the Balinese Hindu believe the ocean is good for recycling returning the final remains back to their source. The soul, we expect, can unite with the God because we believe that the soul itself was the small, small part component of the God itself. This is different with the West religion 
when they are die, you will give the two option, right? Go to the heaven or go to the hell. But in our uh, Hindu belief, people who cannot able to unite with the God in this kind of period of life, they can have a chance to improve the quality of life through what we call the reincarnation process, right? So souls come back again and again, trying to live better lives so that they will one day be able to join with God. Even animal, we believe when they reach the certain level of quality of life, they can born as a human. But in oppositely, when the human have a habit like an animal, even they can reborn as an animal. As a God creature, everyone have the equal chance to improve the quality of life and then to unite with the God. Just as it is for the macaques, whether they be flirting over the graves, stealing my daughter's drink bottle, or just hanging out being monkeys, they each harbour a soul that is on a divine journey. But whether they are moving away or towards God is a question no one can answer. If I have a perfect habit during my life, I can unite with the God because this is the ultimate goal of the of the people as a Balinese, mm. as a Hindu's people. Yeah. How to able to unite with the God. This is the ultimate goal when we are alive. So we need to improve our quality of life and our behavior to be able to unite with the God. Sure. Mm. Yeah, how, how close do you think you are? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> it depends on the God. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Because they already have their own role. Sure. When, when he need to take or call my, my soul to come back to his position. Mm. That's dependent on the God. Uh, so whenever this time come, I'm ready. <laughs> Under the Monkey Forest was recorded on a family holiday to Bali, Indonesia. Special thanks to my partner for not minding me doing work on our leisure time. The story featured the voice, knowledge and thoughts of the general manager of Ubud's Monkey Forest, Nyoman Buana. Thanks to him for his time and generosity. Royalty-free sound clips sourced from freesound.org were used in this piece. Links to the clips can be found on the Human Ordinary website at humanordinary.com. The second story comes from Melbourne author Clint Gregan. We were less than five months from our wedding when my soon-to-be legal in-laws appeared at our home and handed me a large cardboard box. After placing it on the kitchen table and opening it up, two sets of tiny black duckling eyes met with mine. We picked them up and I went a little fuzzy inside, fuzzy like the yellow pelt covering the bulbous little bodies sitting in the palms of our hands. We swooned around them over the next few weeks, fed them, cared for them, helped them grow under the glow of warm lamplight. We converted our decommissioned chicken pen into a duck pen, constructed a small pond, and made a sign out of old fence paling which read, Floppy and Flip Flap. My fiancée Tanya and I took to sitting on the back step and watching as our ducks stepped in and out of the pond, exploring the home we had made for them. I remember experiencing the kind of emotional glow that only comes when you are perfectly content. Four months later and the contentment had faded. Our once cute, fuzzy, palm-sized balls of tweeting sweetness 
had morphed into insanely fat, stumbling, time-consuming, council-arousing, manic boomboxes. They had turned the backyard into a residential pile of shit, quacking so loudly and consistently that I was almost always on edge. With our wedding the following weekend, I imagined my future in-laws laughing at us dealing with our new dependents. And then I was struck with the very real possibility that their gift was intended to be preparation, a parenting preview before the grandchildren they clearly expected and longed for. Tanya and I had been chatting about the very same thing, trying to navigate through the logistics of being real parents once we were hitched and settled. She had a fledgling career as a physiotherapist, while I longed to quit my job as a youth worker and be a full-time stay-at-home dad. Our conversation about this serious, life-changing matter was punctuated with incessant quacking. Tanya reminded me about her paid maternity leave, how she could do the majority of the uni and clinic paperwork from home. I realised she'd already put a lot of thought into it, but the ducks had their own views, quacking at my feet. I swung a boot in the air again and reluctantly threw them some feed, possibly a little too hard, possibly trying to hurt them. But they were unperturbed and began to fill their ravenous bellies. Quite frequently, they stopped eating to glare at me one eyeball at a time. My mind started floating away, daydreaming of being a dad, preparing Peking duck for my young family. Tanya had moved on from our discussion and was musing about the ducks, remarking on how much they'd changed since they were little fuzzballs in our kitchen table. I agreed with her that they'd changed, changed into always hungry, always shitting, demanding noise machines. Tanya looked at me with a wry smile and told me that I could be describing a baby. It's 5am, three months later, and Tanya's sleeping in sweet denial of her morning sickness. I'm semi-dressed and running late, but desperate to get into the backyard to feed Floppy and Flip Flap so their loud, persistent quacking for food doesn't irritate the neighbours or wake Tanya. I step outside and dip my feet into an old pair of treadless sneakers that I had dubbed the Duck Shoes. I break into a panic shuffle as I traverse the 20 metres of now muddy, waterlogged backyard to the duck pen, but my frantic pace sends them into a waddling frenzy. I need to round them up and into the pen so that they can eat, but each time I try, I fail. My frustration grows, and so I increase my efforts by shuffling even faster, grunting like a pig. On the fifth lap of the soaked backyard, I slip on the duck shit laden surface and manage to wedge my foot under the fence. My body twists hard to the right, but my foot maintains its position in the opposite direction. With a snapping sound comes the sharpest of pains, just above my ankle. The echo of my scream wakes Tanya, and there I am, lying in duck shit, my body going into shock, rain falling on my face. As Tanya enters the backyard to check on me, I catch the ducks in my peripheral vision, waddling calmly back into their pen where the food is. Months passed and we become parents to our first boy. We had an untapped level of affection for the little guy, and it's safe to say that our lives had been changed forever. When he was about 10 weeks old, Tanya and I were standing over his cot, having just rocked him to sleep. One of the ducks let out a single quack from the backyard, so loud our son woke with a jolt. This wasn't the first time either. Our yard continued to be more duck shit than anything else, and with our new role as parents to an actual human child, we made the difficult decision of finding the ducks a different place to live. Although truth be told, I think the idea and decision were more mine, Tanya at least entertaining the possibility that we could make the menagerie work. But I had harboured a resentment over the ducks for months now, still caring for them, but also viewing them as intruders into our domestic bliss, a needless responsibility that I neither had the time or will to meet. 
And so Tanya's parents agreed to take them away and down to a nearby lake, a haven where birds of all feathers flocked together, regardless of race, sexuality or birdie ideology. We were certain Floppy and Flip Flap would frolic there till their dying days, fattened and free. I pictured taking our son down in the years to come, so we could point out the ducks that used to keep me on edge with their mess and him awake with their noise. But as they were driven away in the car, I confess that I did feel a bit of relief. The following weekend was a sunny one, and so we decided to take a little family outing down to the lake. On the drive, I wondered whether Floppy and Flip Flap would run at us like they used to in the backyard. Would they even recognise us? Were they making friends? But when we got down there, it was hard to find any ducks at all. We started off walking around the lake, thinking they'd be hiding in the reeds on the far side. But they weren't. A woman in khaki shorts and shirt with a sensible Australian summer hat happened to be kneeling close to the water's edge, jotting some things down in a notepad. As I got closer, I noticed a council logo on her shirt, and so I asked her if she knew why there were so few ducks, and did she know where our ducks were? She stopped writing and looked up at me. She appeared to muster a calm, professional and empathetic tone before telling me that unfortunately the ducks had been removed. I asked her where they had been removed to. With wide eyes locking onto mine, she told me that the previous week, a significant number of the duck population were... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Captured and euthanized. The council, for reasons best known only to itself, had decided to cull the lake's ducks and had done it mere hours after we had said our goodbyes. I had murdered my ducks by proxy. Our son is squirming on the change table and in the past week has gained weight and ticked off all the health markers in the child health record. Yet he is the most vulnerable creature I have ever seen. He defecates like a startled duck. He wheezes straight into the air almost every time I change his nappy and I surprised myself with my nonchalance when he jet-forced a sample taste directly into my mouth. I walk to the kitchen window with my son in my arms. He's drinking and grunting the only noise I can hear. I look down at him and feel the kind of emotional glow that only comes when you are perfectly content. But as I look out onto the backyard, peaceful and neat, grief and regret floods me. Ballad of Floppy and Flip Flap was written and read by Clint Gregan. A version of this story first appeared in his book Reservoir Dad. Clint has a new fiction series out now called Some Kind of Superstar. Head to his website cagregan.com to get the first book in the series for free. That's C-A-G-R-E-A-G-E-N. Royalty-free sound clips sourced from freesound.org were used in this piece. Links to the clips can be found at humanordinary.com. After the break, the final story in this episode of Human Ordinary. About an hour drive northwest of Melbourne, you'll come to a place called Pentland Hills. There, just off the main road, is a property with an iron gate and a sign that reads, Animalia. 
This is one of Melbourne's three pet cemeteries. And inside, right at the front, is a grave for a Staffordshire Bull Terrier. The plaque on it reads, Monk, the legend. He was red with a black face. He was very thick set around the chest, very muscly, all muscle, thick neck. This is Caroline Higgins, Monk's owner. People were scared of him because of the way he looked. So in other ways too, he was kind of a protector without doing anything. But little did anyone know just how meek and mild he was. So I felt really safe with him in the house. He didn't have allergies or anything like that. He was as tough as nails. You know, he loved water so much. And when we lived in the country, my friend's dam, if we even drove down the road, he'd know what he was going to do, which was jump out of the window, go straight to the dam. And he'd even do it at night. And one night he got caught on a barbed wire fence. No yelping, nothing, just hanging there on the barbed wire until we had the torch and go and get him. And he's got all these puncture wounds from the barbed wire. Three of us, you know, get him off really carefully and he runs straight to the dam. When she first got Monk, Caroline was in a relationship with a vet. But they went their separate ways when he wanted to move to the country. The last few things he said to me was that I loved Monk more than him. And it was true. So what could I do? I couldn't deny it. And I wasn't going to be angry at myself. You know, I often wonder why is it that that one dog creates such a bond or you create the attachment with that one animal? And I really do think he filled a void of mothering and it was that maybe that part of me that needed to be needed and depended on and always have a companion. Like many dogs, Monk suffered from genetic issues that were particular to his breed. For Staffies, their main problem stems from their small back legs having to support their stocky frames. It's not uncommon for Staffies to need surgery or medical support as they get older. So I used to carry Monk, you know, towards the end. He could walk, but very wobbly. So what I think actually killed Monk in the end was anti-inflammatories, which is well known to create other problems in their liver and kidneys. Yeah, so 3rd of January 2010 and I was alone here and I was in bed and about 4 in the morning, Monk just vomited this huge blood clot. So I picked him off the bed and put him on the ground and then he vomited again. I had blood everywhere. The next day, this was going on, it was the 4th of January, which is my birthday. So in hindsight, I wish I had have not done anything and just sat it out with Monk and comforted him. But I didn't. You know, when someone has a trauma or something's happening like a death in their life, they go numb and they tune out. That's how I felt. Because it was just after New Year's, people were away. And so Caroline called a pet ambulance service, something she now regrets. They didn't treat Monk with care and dropped him as he was carried out. But despite this, 
They still got Caroline and Monk to a pet hospital. So we get into the consult room and she asks me the vet what's happening. I don't know, he vomited up blood three times. And she just, without even touching me, said, oh yeah, probably internally bleeding and his whole body's going to get totally full of blood. And he's going to keep vomiting. So the best thing to do is put him to sleep. So that all happened really quickly. She convinced me he was suffering so much. I think he was um, confused. Like, oh, I don't know what's happening to me. Why am I vomiting? And what are we doing here? I didn't have enough time to tell him. And so Monk was put to sleep. By then, it was a bit later in the day, and Caroline was able to enlist a friend to come and pick them up and take them back home. Despite it being the middle of summer, Caroline's home was cool inside, and after they had cleaned her bedroom of all the blood, she placed Monk's body on top of the bed. And it was all dark, and it, uh, we had candles in there, and he just looked like he was asleep on the bed. So every time someone rang me to say happy birthday, I told them. And one by one, they came here. So I had about 18 people here, and they all came in to see Monk. What I thought all along was true, that people loved him like I did. Like I wasn't imagining it. Like this, he was, he was special. So I wasn't imagining it, you know, because he'd been in their lives too for 15 years. After a couple of days, I thought, of course, he would die of old age. Yeah, I was pretty much in. The <sighs> deep grief for weeks and weeks and I thought oh my god every birthday is going to be like this in my life but it's not that way because then the good memories overshadowed the tragic trauma of the death Caroline had been working as a civil celebrant officiating a whole range of services like weddings and funerals she has a natural empathy and calmness that makes her ideally suited to this kind of work. And it was during her period of grief that she began reflecting on her experience, about how she was panicked and numb while Monk's health was failing, how she felt taken advantage of by the pet ambulance, who still demanded she pay $170 for the half-hour trip, even after they'd dropped Monk from six feet in the air, and how she felt pushed into making a quick decision about Monk's fate, with no professional really seeming to understand what she was feeling. So she made the decision to begin conducting pet funerals and she started a business called Pause and Reflect. My motto is, as in life, as in death. There's no difference. With my service, these are people that want that pet treated with the utter dignity and respect that they gave it during their life. And having known that attachment to Monk, I know what it feels like. When a pet dies, Caroline will often get a call from their family, shocked, upset, and confused about what to do next. She instantly tries to provide calm. What I find is the minute I talk to someone, they're crying on the phone, but they start processing it. Someone actually is listening to them about their loved one who's died. More often than not, she'll need to go around to the person's house to collect the pet's body something she does with care. When animals die at the vet, they are frozen before being incinerated. 
When Caroline arrives at a house, she will kneel and bow before the pet, exhibiting respect and reverence for the family's loved one. She then places the body into a silk body bag and leads a procession to her car. I'm approaching it from a standpoint of ritual and from the moment you've talked to me on the phone, I'm already talking in a ritualistic way. Most of the time, she then goes alone with the animal to a crematorium where she conducts a ceremony. She constructs an altar out of things the family has given her. Photos, chew toys, blankets, maybe a collar. Other times, this ceremony happens in the family's home. And I do that for myself first, because psychologically I need to ritualise this pet's death because it helps me understand what I'm doing, which is letting pets have a real part in our lives, like they mean more than you know, just a place. Caroline says these ceremonies are very similar to human ones. I introduce myself and thank them for allowing me to honour their pet. And I talk, briefly talk about what I think animals are here to teach us. Like animals teach you how to listen, how to be patient and how to be playful. And then I do the eulogy, which the family would have written. And it's kind of the life story of the pet. And then I sound the Tibetan bowl for each year of the pet's life. Then I open my hands and with the people present, I get them to open their hands and I say to them, picture, visualise your dog or cat in front of you and feel the energy of your animal in your hands. Visualise the colour, electric blue. Keep your hands open, sending that colour to your animal. Just keep sending it until you feel that you're lifting your pet up to the spirit world heaven, whatever you want to call it. And when you feel that that's done, your hands will slowly come together. Afterwards, Caroline says she feels uplifted that she was able to do something meaningful for a grieving family. And she certainly does this. I spoke with one of her clients who told me about her heartbreak after her dog died and how much what Caroline did meant to her and her family. Professionals in the death industry aren't allowed to cry in front of clients or show emotion. They've got to be this strong, silent person, but that's not me. Uh, if I have to cry, I have to cry, but not sobbing, because every now and then that love that I have for mum will go, because they're feeling it too, and we're together. I find that I'm back musing over a similar issue as in a previous Headstone episode. How we can't sit in judgement of someone experiencing loss or grief just because we wouldn't react in the same way. Or we shouldn't diminish a person's experience just because there are other people in the world who have got it worse. See, this is the thing with pet death. No one's interested in it until it happens to them. Some people do think it's ridiculous. You know, why would you do that? And I've got no answer for that, because unless you've experienced it, you don't know. Caroline also told me something else really interesting, and that is some people have told her that the death of their pet hit them harder than the death of their parent. I'm serious. It's real. They're not obsessive animal people. They just love 
this animal? I guess when pets piss inside or scratch the door or hump our guest's leg, we can chalk it up to animalistic behaviour. They don't know any better, and so it becomes easier to forgive them and to love them anyway. But we fall out of love with humans all the time. They can betray us or not be there to support us. And when they do let us down, we often blame their behaviour on a premeditated and calculated decision. So it's not a stretch for me to comprehend that people might feel the same or more for their pet as they do for another person. Because pets are the eternally grateful receivers of our love and affection. And when they are gone, their severed attachment aches because the time spent with them was never sullied by fighting or tears or misunderstandings. But as Caroline said to me, it is we who form these attachments. They exist only in our own reckoning of them. The animal just wants to be fed and cared for, and any displays of love is just the result of positive reinforcement. It is we who want companionship, we who want a best friend, we who crave to be needed. Although, just because we've invented the attachment doesn't mean the hurt isn't real. Oh, do you know what some people have said to me? Oh, we want you to do it because you actually asked our dog's name. Just approaching the animal as a living, meaningful being. That's all it takes. Thanks to Caroline Higgins for sharing her story with me and with you. Her business is called Pause and Reflect Pet Funeral Services. That's pause as in the pause of a dog. She's also available as a human funeral and wedding celebrant and can conduct various blessing ceremonies. Visit carolinehiggins.com for more info. I'll put all of the links from this episode on the website and Facebook page. The Human Ordinary Podcast is produced in Melbourne by me, Sam Lloyd. All original music is by Kent Sutherland. Special thanks to Layla Brook for quality control. You can learn more about the podcast on the website, humanordinary.com, or the Facebook page. Just search for Human Ordinary, all one word, without the forward slash, and it should come up. Science has proven that those who leave reviews and ratings on iTunes are 10 times more awesome. Anyway, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.